she issued an executive order that basically put a single person in charge of overseeing climate issues in her administration. Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass FM radio dial at 102.9. Here today for another Making Sense of Climate session with our guide, Ted McIntyre. Ted, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Steve. Great to, great to see you again as the beginning of the next year in the battle begins. Battle continues. <laughs> How much has been won or lost? We're, we're, we'll find out a little bit about, but there's been a whole lot that's happened even over the past several weeks with the holidays. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, not the least, which we can't, we can barely get into, but the, the atmospheric river is drowning California at the oh. same time as the, the Arctic, uh, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the... Arctic vortex. Yeah, the polar vortex polar comes vortex. Yeah. here in, in in Franklin. It's sixty degrees on Christmas Eve. I mean, just yeah. if and so, but you know, as, as Bill McKibben said, those things are all fine as long as you don't say climate change, right? They're not scary. If they're just mm -hmm. normal variations, if you don't yeah. say climate change, it's all okay. Yeah. So we won't say that right now because we don't want to scare anybody <laughs> away. But for the listeners, we're here because I want to get some sense of what's going on on the climate side. And Ted's certainly going to help us. And yeah, you should be a little scared, but don't get too scared. Listen to us and try to make some sense of it as well. And certainly as well in the show notes, but for audibly, we'll say that as well. If you've got questions you'd like answered, feel free to send us an email and we'll add the questions to a future episode. So I'm glad to hear it's a good new year so far. Obviously, there's been a whole lot happening. Most recently, of course, we got a new governor. And then the governor came out with an executive order announcing a climate lead. Wow, that is a change. It is a change. And it, it allows you allows us to set the context for our listeners to, to think back. So it was just a year ago, see, that you and I started having these very interesting discussions. And at the time the particular hobby horse that I was riding around and still am riding around is the roadmap, the, the, uh, the climate roadmap that Massachusetts has for the years 2030 and 2050. And that climate roadmap is basically the plan by which we will do what we need to do to protect our, protect the planet, right? And mostly right. that's uh, reducing our carbon emissions uh, and you know, if we're smart about it, make our economy better, right? So that you've got this roadmap that we started out a year ago, and we've been tracking that progress. Through the course of the year, that roadmap was revamped and maybe more detail was put into it in last summer when our favorite representative, Jeff Roy, led the effort to have a, an additional climate bill that strengthened that roadmap, right? right? So once you start talking about a roadmap, you can imagine progress and checklists and things that have to happen. All that kind of stuff is underway. There's lots of climate work going uh, going ahead in the state under the this roadmap, which of course 
because the state has so many different bureaucracies, there's all kinds of competing interests that mm -hmm. come around, right? There's, because yeah. you're talking about transportation, you know, reducing carbon emissions from transportation, reducing carbon emissions from buildings, reducing carbon emissions from electricity. Those are all different organizations. Sure. And, you know, they don't necessarily talk to each other, which then brings us to the beginning of January 2023, right? So we've got a whole year trying to follow this roadmap. Uh, through the course of 2022, some very good things happened, one of which was, I think, very good, is that Maura Healy was elected governor of the state of Massachusetts, right? Yep. And she ran as a something of a climate climate uh, candidate, right? certainly taking it seriously, perhaps yep. more more consciously seriously than Charlie Baker did, right? Charlie Baker played along, right? But more well, Healy he, is he played along, but then even in August when he finally signed the bill, it was after having Ajita. <laughs> um, exactly. Jeff yeah. ended up calling him out on that in particular, and you know, but he signed so, it. So yeah. So Healy is more more upfront uh, a climate person who appreciates the gravity of what the climate issue is about. Right. And so that was it was good news in both her inauguration speech and in her initial actions. So in her inaugural speech, she talked about all the benefits of having Massachusetts be a climate corridor, the climate technology corridor uh, from the Berkshires to Boston, right? And it's, it's the stuff that we've talked about, but I mean, all the technical economic jobs that are offered by addressing climate change is something she can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. um, the other important thing that she did, we can try and go through some of the details, but the other interesting and important thing that she did, for my money, goes back to this famous roadmap thing that we keep talking about. She issued an executive order that basically put a single person in charge of overseeing climate issues in her administration. So you can, you know, the shorthand is climate czar, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, anyway, but this is now a person at the cabinet level, right? has access to the governor and has responsibility for coordinating the climate plan, right? Yes. And to my mind, that means making sure that the, that different groups within the state government, like the department, like the MBTA mm -hmm. is talking to the Department of Energy Resources to understand where's all that electricity going to come from? Yeah. And how are we going to reduce, you know, if the if the transportation department has a responsibility to install $400 million worth of new electric vehicle chargers, mm -hmm. then, then somebody ought to be talking to the people who make the electricity that's going to go through those things, right? So there's a level of coordination. And, you know, and I think the buzzword nowadays is all of government, which I think is, even though it's new phrase, it's already kind of worn out, right? But I mean, I mean every, every organization in the Massachusetts government has to be aligned in order for the roadmap to succeed. And so what Governor Healy has done is to name somebody, I hope with enough clout mm -hmm. to crack heads and take names, right, and get the different organizations to talk to each other so that the, um, 
the efforts are coordinated, not redundant, and not at cross purposes. Right? right. That yeah. makes sense. Absolutely. And from my corporate background, I had a bunch of years where I was either a project manager or part of a program office, and the equivalent is very similar, I think. So effectively, uh, I think it's Melissa Hopper now is a direct report of the governor sitting at the table with all the other cabinet leads. Her focal point is not running energy, not running transportation, not coordinating the efforts. So building those relationships, making sure the timeline details, which get, we we could spend hours on, we're, we're at a high level. Yes, they did this. Yes, they did. But there's a whole lot of project management work to make all those pieces and parts come together across the government. Now there's one person and her I'm assuming there'll be a relatively small org. It may grow over time, certainly. But that is the group that's going to coordinate to make sure that energy does and this does and that happens. And it's not like we've seen a couple of times last year. It was like left hand, right hand. And it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, they're at cross purposes. No, 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 no. Come on. Right. We at least exactly, have man. a chance with the one org going forward. Well, and to my mind, even if someone is looking at it, right, the worst thing is when no one is thinking about right. the efforts that are at cross purposes. If someone, even if they are denied the ability to command, right, so I think this person is going to have mostly the leverage that Melissa Hoffer will have comes from whether or not Healy backs her up, right? right? So you, you can imagine you're sitting in a room of uh, the governor is sitting with all these peers and Department of Transportation says, I don't want to put in, I want to put in more chargers. And the uh, the electricity people say, I can't make enough electricity for you. And Hoffer, being the czar, says, well, you guys have to get together. And so at that point that Healy has to say, my energy, my climate czar is correct. You two guys go do what she says, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's where yeah. I think the, the, implementation will be, but I yeah. think it's a super good thing. I think that the Healy administration is starting off right in trying to come immediately to terms with the fact that these issues are real and present and needs to be dealt with. They're real and present, as we've said, certainly at 60 degrees here in Christmas and even in January. And because it's been relatively dry, that'll potentially give us drought statuses later in the summer because we're supposed to be getting snow and or rain to fill up our aquifers, et cetera. So we cannot ignore it, which is why we're talking, because you know what's going on and I'm trying to make sense of it. And she at least has come right out of the gate and said, oh, by the way, this is the most important thing for the state to do. So... You know, obviously the proof's in the pudding, but we'll continue to follow along. And that's a great start. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you can't say it often enough, right? And if, if hearing about the economic opportunity for that comes with addressing climate change, if you find that, if you roll your eyes and say, oh, I've heard that before, that's good because not everyone has, but if, if you haven't sort of comprehended the opportunity of the sort of industry that Massachusetts could capture, right? So in other words, the, 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 I think the analogy was Deval Patrick, 
who said when he came in, he wanted Massachusetts to be a biotech place. Right? Center, and yeah, yeah. biotech center, you know, pharma, pharma, biotech. Mm-hmm. Kendall Square resulted from that. There's tons of jobs that came with that. And the <laughs> opportunity... COVID, COVID vaccines came out of it, right? They Right. I mean, it, it's here, here you are. I mean, we did the right thing. And Massachusetts benefited from it economically. Same is true with this climate stuff in space, because you have to build wind turbines, you have to build solar panels. Not that we're going to build solar panels in Massachusetts, but the technology around it uh, and all around the wind, I mean, the, the construction of a wind turbines up and down the East Coast, we get to be participate in. And I think that the nitty gritty um, retrofit of buildings. So mm-hmm. we've said it on the show before, but mm-hmm. like all the buildings in that like nearly every building in Massachusetts needs to be retrofitted. Right? Sure. Who's going to do that? Yeah. There are thousands and thousands of jobs there for, you know, green collar, as they say, people to go do that. So it's a big benefit. And so from that sort of pragmatic workaday thing of retrofitting homes all the way up to high tech uh, responses, Massachusetts can be there. And Healy, I think, is trying to push us in that direction. So it's a good thing. Yes. Indeed, and picking up on one of the things that I had been touted when we talked with Rep Roy back in November, he had talked to us and shared for the listeners at that time. So we can include in the show notes for those who may not have listened then. This will be the episode to go back. And Roy, Jeff talked about a visit to a wind turbine blade testing facility, and he touted that the video was going to be coming out. Well, the video just came out, so that's that's available but that in itself is an example of this new architecture because I think, and it showed even in the video, he talked of the blades now coming out are bigger than the building they were originally designed to test them in because the technology is advancing such. So there's still opportunity to grow the building, sort of the bigger blades and who knows how long that building will last as more bigger blades come, or maybe somebody will come up along and, you know, do a different design of a blade and they'll be shorter and can fit in the existing buildings. But right, this, is, thing this, is is happening. A, this is a building in Charlestown, right? It's in Boston. It's a blade. So what is a blade testing facility? Right? I do not know for sure, but dear listener, every time you see a windmill, there's three big wing blades, right? There's three rotating things. Mm-hmm. Those are blade. Those are the blades. They're an awful lot like the wing of a 747, right? They have a shape, yeah. right? Dynamic. And yep. so and they have a shape that allows the thing to have a force to rotate the whole, um, to rotate, blah, blah, blah. But a wind test, a blade testing facility, I think would do things like basically trying to break that blade you know they get a they get one of these enormous blades in mm-hmm. they stick it on the, they hang it off the wall and then everybody jumps up and down on it a couple times see if, see if they can break it right they hang weights on it they shake it they do all kinds of stuff to it to to convince themselves the engineers to convince themselves that that blade is strong enough to withstand the north atlantic winds and it's going to be safe for 30 years out in the middle of George's bank someplace. I mean, that's a non-trivial thing to think about, right? right? It's a big job. And you can imagine the people that are given the task of 
signing their name on the dotted line. I mean, some human has to say, yes, I approve this. This is mm -hmm. has been correctly tested and will last for 30 years out in the North Atlantic, right? That's a big job. And there's a lot of money changing hands to make those things happen. And it's a good thing for Massachusetts. So. And I think it's related to that, you know, science is somewhat distrusted, but science developed the technology and now the implementation of that technology still needs to get tested. Okay, so somebody's designed this blade, it's 100 feet long or whatever, and should be able to spin X number of miles per hour and last how many years? Well, do we wait that number of years to see if it's actually going to work? What they're doing now, from what I understand, is developing tests that'll stress the blade in such a way that they'll get at least get a confidence level fairly high that says, yes, it should last. And under these circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. So and um, you can imagine you can imagine that there's going to be new materials, right? That, oh, so for sure. They're always searching for something that's yeah. lighter and stronger. And then you have to convince yourself it's it's adequate to the task, right? And so there's this ongoing thing. I mean, these blades, I think the, the current generation of blades is more than 300 feet long. And that's a football field, longer yeah. than a football field, yeah. right? And that, I mean, it's kind of thrilling to even think about it. I mean, you get three of those things at 300 feet swinging through the air, right? There's a lot of force on that. And mm -hmm. you gotta, you have to very, you have to really know what you're talking about to make, to do that. So. Yeah, you're not going to put it together with a piece of duct tape. Right? And, and just if I could go one, I mean, I went to Greentown Labs, which is a place in Somerville, which is an incubator for startup companies. Okay. okay? And it's an incubator for green startup companies. And uh, so I was there in the before time, right? This is back before COVID, I was in there. Mm -hmm. And there's this guy with his little trifold. Um, piece of paper, like at the science fair, like the eighth grade science fair, right? And he's showing off his technology. What's his technology? It is a, essentially an artificial intelligence or, or, or a, a sailboat that's smart enough to sail on its own. And you okay. program a pattern and it sails out into the Atlantic and maps your wind farm. Right. And it can stay out there for weeks, doesn't have to come back in, follows this very precise pattern, collects all the, you know, the wave height, right. the wind right. speed, all this yep. stuff. Then it sails back in. And it's like recently I saw that this this company has been picked as now a much bigger operation. It's a real thing. And <laughs> it went from this little video of an idea of this, this guy trying to sell it. But I mean, this is the kind of technology that you can imagine that Massachusetts would be able to capture and have located here if uh, the Healy program goes forward. Right. And certainly as we come more this year, uh, we'll, I'm assuming, bring Jeff Roy back in where one of the conversations we had with him that we still don't know is the committee assignments. We're assuming and he certainly has desires to continue his technology uh, role, et cetera, um, because that's in the energy space as it is utility and energy to a um, TUE, telecommunications T -U -E. utility, TUE, telecommunications utility and energy, which is a weird conglomeration of topics, right. but right. that's where the action is. Assuming he does, we'll bring him back because he'll be able to talk to the different aspects as the story continues to develop. It was interesting, too, because Commonwealth Magazine just shared this week uh, in their podcast, their form of a podcast, uh, 
conversation with Rep. Roy and Senator Barrett, who is the co-chair of tour from the Senate side and Jeff leading from the representative side. And they were covering similar topics, you know, where are we starting the year, et cetera. And clearly, as we've talked before, some of the contracts that have already been ordered, off, offered and then awarded, some of the companies are saying, ah, the, the finances have changed. I, I want to redo the deal. <laughs> but this is for the wind stuff, right? Oh, the wind stuff, yes. So, the wind so is having troubles. <laughs> wind is a little, it's kind of bumpy right now. And so, yeah, the context for that is that, again, under the roadmap, Right. It, the state has has called out, uh, has required that the utilities buy a certain amount of wind power that's generated from wind turbine farms off the Massachusetts coast. Mm-hmm. Okay, so about a year, eighteen months ago, um, these tracks of ocean were opened up. They were bid on a company called Avon Grid and another one called I think it's called Mayflower Wind. Took the contract to build wind turbines and have them operational, I think like 2024, one maybe them, 2027, one of them, I think Jeff has said is coming at the end of the year. We should getting power from the end of the year from them. So, so these guys, they went to the state, they offered a contract with the state to supply electricity. And so this gets, again, without going into all the arcane details, but I mean, they got a contract to build these wind turbines. And then along comes Putin invading Ukraine, <laughs> yeah. uh, disrupts the energy markets. Considerably. Uh, considerably. <laughs> uh, and then at the same time, the inflation starts to creep up and the Fed raises the interest rates. So keep in mind, this company called Avangrid is thinking about a 30-year mortgage, right, on these wind turbines they're going to pay for. So it's all interest rates that are very important for the financial um, capacity of a project. Interest rates start rising. The supply chain gets disrupted. Avangrid all of a sudden gets cold feet, says, I don't, I, I can't make money at this contract. It goes back to the state and says, I want out. Please let us renegotiate the contract so we can make a guarantee that we make money. The state said, no way, you signed a contract, right? Uh, that's what a contract is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we should have thought about right. this before. Yeah. Uh, and then recently, I think in December, Avangrid just backed out and said, we're not going to, we're not going to honor the contract. Which then, what that does is it calls into question the whole industry that we're trying to build, right? And the question is whether or not this is a, a hiccup or this is something more profound. And I think that most of the stuff that I've seen says that it's more of a hiccup than a profound thing. And that this state we're in right now is that Van Grid says it wants to renegotiate the contract or, or no, I think what they said was they were the state was going to include the original tracks of ocean in a new bidding thing that would happen this spring that Avon Grid would then bid in for the same thing and still be able to deliver the electricity on schedule, but maybe at a higher cost because the interest rates are going up. And I think, I think that the state in particular, Representative Roy and, and Senator Barrett are saying that, you know, the take home lesson for the state is that we need to build in a little bit of wiggle room, or uh, cost of living adjustments for these contractors who 
want to build a wind turbine so that we don't get caught in this circumstance again, in the sense to, to future-proof or prevent this from coming again. Is that, is that the way you read the article, Steve? Yeah, there's, there's certainly an interpretation that way, absolutely. On the other hand, having been in the corporate world, um, certainly on a lesser scale, dealing with some pricing and contracts, the corporation should be dealing with that and building that in accordingly. I mean, they got a 10-year contract, so if they're going to be out of bed for a couple of years, and I think even Jeff Roy mentioned it when we talked to him, he's, they're, they're, if they're only for a couple of years, they're, they're still going to have time to make some money later on. But yeah, finances aside, I think in the conversation, and the link will be in the show notes, so you can go listen to the podcast episode with Senator Barrett and Rep Roy and hear in their words that... Yeah, the state should be in a position to at least, you know, give some financial penalties for non-deliverance, non-follow-through on the contract. Probably shouldn't ban them because there's only four companies out there. They want all four to continue to bid. To your point, to keep this uh, economy and growth of this industry going, um, but recognize as well that, you know, hey, you signed the contract. <laughs> you should have figured that out. So. This will be a topic I'm assuming for a while, um, oh, yeah. so we'll come back to it. <laughs> well, and it's it's an, again, yeah, all this stuff is tied together. The other thing that the state has recently done is to the climate bill that was passed last summer allows Massachusetts to work with the state of Maine mm -hmm. to buy power from this high voltage transmission thing. So remember, remember, we've talked to, you know, this now goes back six whole months, which is, you know, ancient history. But uh, the the idea of bringing clean electricity from the from the hydro hydro dams in Quebec, bring clean electricity down through some power lines through Maine, into Massachusetts, ran into trouble when the voters in Maine objected. And so there's been legal cases and round right. and round and round. Yeah. Anyway, the thing's back on track. Yeah. Uh, if Massachusetts and Maine can commit to purchase the power that would come through that power line. And, and so, again, this is a the reason I'm bringing it up is because this is an example of where the states and the region work together to solve the problem, the, the yeah. power problems, and get that get that um, high voltage line built in Maine, which would then complement all this wind turbine energy that we're making offshore. Yeah, and I think related to that, even in the podcast episode, um, they also talked that Maine also has a wind farm proposal of their own, to which I think we may also be a party to provide some to buy some of that output from, which goes to one of the themes that we've talked about before is that you know Mass can't do this alone, nor can Connecticut, nor can Maine. New England as a whole is going to have to get in there, and the more we can do and consolidate and coordinate together, it's going to be better for all of us in the long term. So, yes, yeah, we'll continue to keep abreast of those as this roadmap continues to progress and go forward. And uh, I mean, one of the one of the other funky things that happened, which was kind of under the radar for for I think us here in eastern Massachusetts over Christmas. But I guess over Christmas, there were um, there were blackouts in Maine on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day because <clears throat> the electricity grid in New England had to run oil or something. Yeah. Yeah, and, it couldn't meet the demand, supposedly. Hmm? It couldn't meet the demand, according to one article I saw, yeah. 
Right. And, and so now they're getting penalized. I think that the, um, but what it does is it exposes, it's not quite cronyism, but the sort of lack of transparency of the ISO grid, because no one can quite figure out what went wrong at these different power plants mm -hmm. that they couldn't supply the electricity. Right. And no one's, ISO is not going to show anybody, right? right? Because they're, they're all trying to protect each other. Uh, but it speaks to the question of how do we, I get, for me in particular, it addresses the question of how do we build a grid in 10 or 20 years that is resilient against the increasingly crazy weather we have, right, and does not use fossil fuels, is probably going to be local generation, more solar panels, more wind turbines locally, a lot more battery storage, right? And mm -hmm. we need to begin to think that way. And part of the issue is, I guess, from my, my parochial perspective, I mean, ISO New England is not interested in sharing any information or sharing the, the, the power to define the grid, right? They are mm. very cloistered. And yeah. because you know, there's going to be more, I mean, if everyone's car and everyone's cook stove runs off electricity, if you have a big blackout, everything is well and truly problematic. Right? Mm -hmm. So we have to, we need to be thinking now about how that grid is going to be resilient when we build it for the, for the coming, you know, weather stuff we're going to face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the conversations we had with Rep Roy, not to beat so much on that bush, but uh, it's, it's related. And that's one of the issues that they're talking about because the transmissions lines technically have been generally one way out from the power station to the endpoints and to the extent that a lot of folks buildings etc have now put in solar panels or will be establishing some other local generation whether even geothermal energy etc to have something of a two-way right so the the electricity can go back into the grid to help build that resilience so it's not just you know, coming from the major powers or whatever the sources are, if they need some help, hey, tap into well, the batteries, tap into I mean, some other sources. The the analogy that, that I remember is that the electricity system is kind of like your blood vessels, is that the big blood vessels keep branching into smaller and smaller and capillaries. So by the, whatever, capillaries. Yeah. So by the yep. time you get to Franklin, you're on a capillary, right? Yeah, it's yeah. hard to pump a lot of blood back through that little capillary back mm -hmm. up to the heart, right? So yep. you need a bigger, a different kind of transmission system to handle the distributed generation. And of course, that's a buzzword. You'll see it. DG is sometimes called. Distributed mm -hmm. generation is where there's lots of solar panels everywhere. There's lots of batteries everywhere. It'll be fun to see how all this works out. Indeed. And then in our last conversation before Christmas, that long time ago, there had been a recent announcement about a development in fusion, which I know we've talked about fusion a little bit here and there, and but we kind of missed spending some time on that. And then as part of some of the other recent news, there's word that maybe nuclear may be coming back in a little way. So well, yeah, I, I think, think you've got some insights on this. Well, it just at the very highest level, right? The, the most simple conceptual level, there's two ways, there's two different kinds of nuclear power, right? One is called fusion, 
would literally comes from the word fusing together two atoms, right? You take two atoms, you fuse them into one atom, Squeeze and you gain some energy, right? Right. The other, the, the typical nuclear plant that you're familiar with from Three Mile Island and, uh, you know, whatever, the, uh, the China syndrome, that's mm -hmm. called a fission nuclear plant. Fission meaning basically you break one large thing into two smaller things and get some energy, right? So just conceptually, there's fusion where you're putting two things together to get energy, fusion where you're taking one big thing apart to get energy. Fine, fine. Talk about fusion, right? Fusion where you're slamming things together to make, to make two things into one happens in the sun, right? And of course, inside the sun, everything is so hot and smashed up, so energetic that it's easy for things to bang into each other and become one. The question is, how do you make that happen here on Earth without blowing up the Earth? Right? How do you control how do you, it? <laughs> so how do you control? That's where you get right controlled fusion. So the, the the big breakthrough was that out at Lawrence Berkeley Lab on the West Coast. It, it's so cool. They have. 192 lasers that are all coming in from different directions focused on one tiny little spot, one tiny little spot. And what they do is they have, they basically shoot a little puff of hydrogen, which is the thing you want to, you want to get to fuse. That's why it's a hydrogen bomb, right? The, mm -hmm. the hydrogen bomb is a fusion bomb. You blow some hydrogen in there and then they snap their fingers and all 192 lasers at once go bammo and compress all that little puff of hydrogen and try and fuse some of those atoms together. Well, it turns out that Lawrence Livermore, finally, after 50 years, they got more energy out than they put in. That all those 192 lasers put in a certain amount of energy, they liberated more energy, which was this enormous breakthrough in the sense that it technically shows you can generate energy. But it, it was not a nuclear power plant. It was a lab. Um, anyway, I get this breakthrough got touted as this milestone, right? Uh, the Secretary of Energy was on TV talking about how what a wonderful thing it is. And it's true. It's really cool. But the problem is that it's going to be another 20 years before fusion energy is anywhere near uh, uh, producing power. I mean, it's kind of like saying uh, the first guy who got kerosene, a can of kerosene and put a match to it, it blew up and said, oh, okay, I can liberate energy. It's a long way from that to a power plant, right? Mm -hmm. and so the reason that the fusion, from, again, in my opinion, the reason that the fusion thing is notable and should be thought of carefully is because <clears throat> the the sexy idea of fusion power, where all these lasers make unlimited power, is sold to us as some near-term solution that means we don't have to do the hard work of cutting our emissions in with wind turbines. It's a, uh, and we'll get, come back to this, but this is very appealing thing because it's gonna be there in 20 years. It's gonna be perfect. We don't have to do anything right now. And we can spend a lot of money on this uh, between now and 20 years from now, we can spend a lot of money on fusion. So on the one hand, I can go down, there's lots of good, good things about fusion power, but it is not, it is not a solution for 2030. It is not going to get us to where we need to be in 2030. And we should not let the pursuit of fusion power distract us from the things that we do need to do to get to the energy grid we need in 2030.
So fusion is cool, but it's not a 2030 solution. It's, it's not the savior. It's not the panacea to avoid what we need to do to stop using the fossil fuels that we are heavily using now and contributing to the ongoing climate variations that we've talked about anyway. So, yeah. And so, so okay. So let's go to the other side of the coin. Okay. So we just talked about fusion where you're fusing two things together. The reverse side is what's called fission where you're breaking a big thing like uranium into two smaller things, mm -hmm. right? So the, the fission nuclear reactors are what we currently have today. We have these enormous plants in Massachusetts is just closing down the Pilgrim plant, right? Which has been running for 50 years. It's a big nuclear power plant runs on uh, this fission process. Uh, F-I-S-S-I-O-N, fission process, they want to dump 100 million gallons of radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay because that's how they're going to decommission the plant, blah, 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 blah. There is, however, nowadays talk of something else, another nuclear fission idea. This is called, stay with me, stay with me here. <laughs> this is a small modular reactor, an SMR. And the idea here is that instead of having a nuclear reactor the side of the size of Three Mile Island or Chernobyl or the uh, Pilgrim Power Plant, a big facility, you can have a nuclear reactor inside what amounts to a uh, on the back of a truck, you know, a 53 foot truck. You could pack a nuclear reactor into that it would be small. You can make a whole bunch of them and they would produce oh, two or 300 megawatts of power. Uh, and you could truck them into your favorite uh, site, set them up, plug them in with your USB cord, <laughs> and, and, you know, power. you lost your races. Power, you got power. Again, <clears throat> to my mind, there's so many things wrong with the concept of small modular reactors, not the least of which being is they are still a lot of years away from being relevant to the 2030 deadlines. You know, they may or may not be bad in and of themselves, but they're not relevant for the emergency we're in now because they're not ready to go yet. Mm. Okay. And they're not ready to go for a lot of reasons because they can't currently be mass produced. The, what's called the supply chain, the, the industries that build all the components that would go into the, you know, 100, 200, 300 small modular reactors every year, that doesn't exist, right? And it's not going to exist for a long time because the the various technologies that would have this small reactor inside of a, a container, you know, a shipping container, I mean, they're not there yet. Mm. But it keeps getting offered as this magic technical solution that will solve our problems. And it allows us to be distracted from the work that we need to do in the here and now, putting up wind turbines and solar panels, right? It's a promise that it's going to be great in the great by and by. And the, for both fission and fusion, the amount of dollars it takes to make these things go is enormous. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of money. And I can imagine that if we get mesmerized by these technologies, all of our money goes there instead of into the nitty gritty stuff of retrofitting buildings, which is not sexy at all, right? But is much more pragmatic. There are a ton of other reasons why both fission and fusion are not great um, 
on a technical level. But let me just say that one last thing, because I know this is this we can go pretty far down the uh, pretty far down the rabbit hole over fission and fusion power. But I, the other big issue that I have with it is about something called energy democracy. Right. So this is a concept you don't need a background in nuclear physics to understand. But currently, in under this regime, under using either any of these nuclear things, the nuclear power plant is going to be owned by some big corporation, right? That's going to make money by doling out the power to you, selling you power. If the power plant is going to be someplace off, it's not going to be, you're not going to control it as a community. A vision of energy democracy says, you know, you could have wind turbines distributed all around, right? Franklin, for example, could conceivably have at least partway to being its own self-reliant place by building its own electricity generation facility and storing it what it needs. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, probably in, you know, regionally, right? It's not right. Franklin all by itself. Right. But the whole idea that you you as a consumer know where that power is coming from and have some control over it, as opposed to having a fusion plant that is someplace way off that you don't get to ever interact with. It's all hidden smart guys in lab coats are running it, right? And mm -hmm. they're telling you, trust me, it's going to be fine. That blue glow you see in the night, don't, don't ignore that blue glow. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a joke, but I mean, you know, energy democracy demands a decentralized grid where you know where you're getting electricity from and you have some control over it. And that's a better place for us to be going into the future. So that's another reason why you know, all this nuclear stuff is kind of kooky. And that's said by a guy with a background in nuclear physics. That is the same me. So I, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you are credentialed much more so than I. <laughs> Which is why we're talking to help me make sense of this climate stuff. Yeah. So to summarize, I think both fusion and fission are kind of the shiny objects. But realistically, and I think the other piece that we didn't mention earlier, but the state also... I think it was on 1230 or 1231 issued their kind of report, a massive report. It was significant. It's a nice big PDF. I've downloaded. I haven't had a chance to go read through it yet. But some of the timelines that we've talked to in terms of 2030, 2050, et cetera, they've already acknowledged that um, we're not going to meet that by 2030. It's going to be 2035. If we continue to put the money after nuclear in whichever way, then the other work that needs to be done, going back to the geothermal, going back to the wind, going back to solar, wouldn't get done, and we'd be further behind. So, yeah. You know, I have not reviewed a report that you mentioned, Steve, but I mean, when I see something that says, oh, we already know in 2023 that we can't make that 2030 goal, it's going to be 2035. My guess is that the reason they know that they can't make it is because they can't do it cost effectively and mm -hmm. they can't pay someone to do it that's not the same thing as saying we can't do it right and the the the, the existential question is is it so important that we do it that we have to sacrifice the profit motive right d d you know does somebody have to make money at it and if 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 we say gee we all died because the, the the planet collapsed, but at least we made money in the process of not, you know, mm -hmm. everything was profitable. That's stupid, right? If we need to get to some level of emission by 2030, then we need to get there. And it doesn't matter if we can't make money at it. And 
that's just my contrarian view of mm. <laughs> of yeah. those things. Yeah, no, it comes back to a matter of prioritization, and clearly the current administration has at least taken the good step. Proof's in the pudding still, but the good step of creating the climate czar, as we've mentioned. So the proof's going to be in the pudding there. We'll continue to watch and see what happens as it goes. Um, as the both the House and the Senate locally in mass get their committee assignments, we'll check back in with our local representation and find out if they're continuing their roles, because that'll be a key piece. And then we can go catch some of those other reports that came out that we didn't have time to read yet because it was during the holidays. Do you want to read this or you want to have a good time? So, <laughs> And then that'll, that'll at least be the teasers coming for the next time, folks. <laughs> Needless to say, there's nothing... We, we, we're not short of topics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it... Uh, yes. There's a million... Oh, yes. I keep track of this stuff. There's so many... Inter- in this... Not, again, not, be, there are some topics that are purely technical, right? Yes. So there's some company that has decided they are going to start geoengineering by injecting dust particles into the stratosphere, and they're going to make money at it, right? They think that, right? And That's terrible. It's you, terrible. I mean, why would they want the dust particles in the atmosphere? I think I know the answer, but I'm not sure. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, if if you put dust particles particles into the atmosphere, it reflects sunlight, so oh. then the sun doesn't get into the earth and warm it up. Basically, you're reflecting more of the heat back out before it gets here. Okay, well, but it is incredibly some of that dust dangerous. Also, get intermixed in with the atmosphere and thereby create more rain. <laughs> All kinds of issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. A, it is. It, well, my point being, I guess where I started was saying there are sort of these. Very interesting technical topics that come up, this being one of them. Right? This, is, yeah. this is a crazy idea, but somebody's going to do it. Then there's other more interesting philosophical discussions. There was one article I was reading about. A, it was called The Great Forgetting. And mm-hmm. it was talking about how the planet, the planet has stored information for millions of years in different parts of itself, right? In particular, the, the ice, the, the glaciers. Sure. Right? Yeah. long history of what the planet went through. And yep. that's going to melt in 10 years and be gone. Yep. Right? And so you get into this sort of philosophical um, discussion about what does it mean to be human and what are we doing? So there's so, always something to talk about. Always and and talk about. not just philosophical to a certain extent, because there was an article just recently about the Great, Law, Great Salt Lake and it drying up. Now, it's being salt. The water has provided a protective layer over the not so good chemicals that are on the bottom. And as the water continues to dry up, then those chemicals will expose all the Great Salt Lake residents accordingly. Never mind, I think there's also work and reports being done about Siberia and the great frozen tundra there and all the methane that's stored underneath that as the tundra melts will get revealed and exposed to the atmosphere. So, yeah, I, it, it, I mean, they're philosophical it, it, on some cases, but they're also deadly in other cases. I mean, the Colorado River is drying up. Yes. Right? So, yes, I mean, you can scare the, the, the scare yourself, right, which probably is a good thing to do, mm-hmm. but it also is a call to action saying, you know, we need to be taking this more seriously. So, anyway, lots yeah. to talk about. 
Lots to talk about indeed. Well, thank you for sharing some time and insights today. Um, we will have more to talk about as we continue to explore and make sense of climate. And for the listeners, we thank you for listening. Come back. If you've got any questions, as we mentioned before, if you caught that, send them to us and we'll try and address those in a future piece. And above all, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.